Support for the following podcast comes from The Church Co., the leading expert in church websites. All you have to do is sign up, choose a monthly plan, and then their team builds out your website for free. Strengthen your community with features like a digital prayer wall, small group pages, and events. You can find out more at thechurchco.com. And make sure you use the promo code CMHS21 to get lifetime 20% off any of their plans. We don't talk about suicide very much in the church because when we raise the topic, we're afraid that we'll plant the idea or we might glamorize it or encourage you know, someone to act on suicidal thoughts. Hey there, and welcome to the Care Ministry Podcast, a show about equipping ministry leaders and transforming communities through care. Supporting those in your church and community not only changes individuals' lives, but it grows and strengthens the church. But we want to do that without burning out. So listen in as we learn about tools, strategies, and resources that will equip your team and strengthen hope. I'm Laura, and on the show today, we'll be talking all about suicide prevention with Glenn Bloomstrom, director with Living Works. He shares that not only is the church able to support those who struggle with thoughts of suicide, but as community leaders, a key to creating safe environments for people to share is to do less fixing and more listening. Glenn grew up in a military family as an only child, born in Japan with early years in Vietnam, later in Paris, France, and then finally settling in Minnesota. Despite the challenges of being a third culture kid, Glenn describes himself as an extrovert who had many mentors that spoke into his life. The most important people in my life were my own parents. You know, my mother uh, comes from Hawaii. She's Japanese. My dad comes from central Minnesota. His last name, Bloomstrom, is Swedish, uh, German and uh, Swedish. But uh, when when my dad was in the military, you know, I I think uh, teachers... Uh, scout leaders, uh, adult volunteers. Uh, I was in the NRA, so I was learning how to shoot a 22 and uh, Boy Scouts. You know, it's just so profound, the impact that young adults, uh, my, my scout leader was a, uh, an, an engineer lieutenant who eventually went to Vietnam. I, I hope he made it. His name was Lieutenant Buffalo. And uh, you know, those are our key people. And then, of course, when my dad retired, when we were in central Minnesota, probably one of the most influential mentors was my band director. He taught, talked to us often about being human beings and the next generation of leaders. I'll never forget his voice. It was very, very powerful. And then youth leaders. Again, college students. When I was in high school, coming home uh, and a part of the Luther League group in the Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Brainerd, Minnesota. You know, there's just so many people and you're there for a few months, but you can have a profound impact. Mm, I love that. So regardless where you traveled or where you lived, relationships, your parents and yourself seem to engage in relationships and people that were influential in you. Yes. Well, I should say I'm an only child too. So being an only child, you've got to engage people or you're by yourself. Uh, my dad was a little more extroverted, so uh, I learned how to talk to people and, and uh, be a little assertive uh, about what I needed and what I liked, and that was met 
by all these volunteers uh, and supported in, in a really nice way. Are you yourself extroverted or introverted? Well, I was much more extroverted when I was younger. Uh, I think uh, I've, I've wisely learned how to listen and uh, not have to be the center of attention. Uh, all those things we kind of learn over time. And then as I've gotten older, I just really value the power of, um, of, of hearing the wisdom from people when you're in a group. It's, it's really profound to engage people uh, in the learning process. Uh, they have an investment and they take much more back. So extroverts tend to fill the room and it's all about them. And that was really me, I think, when I was in my youngest self. <laughs> I love that. Being a fellow extrovert myself, I could I can agree. It was definitely difficult at the beginning of my caregiving career of learning how to listen. It's definite it's a it's a skill that many extroverts um, Indeed. Can struggle with. <laughs> and you know, I think pastors and ministry leaders, especially younger ones, uh, are, are in that place. I mean, we, we have an autopilot. We can make a an assessment or have a hypothesis about what a person needs. And we go into autopilot with a mini Bible study and just with a wonderful heart of wanting to be an encourager. But what I've learned with some training is it's best to know really, really the person before we start giving out. It's better to come alongside and listen. When did you first learn that lesson? Well, I was an army active duty chaplain for 10 years. And uh, in, in the early years, when you're a battalion chaplain, it's all about ministry of presence and, and being with soldiers. And again, you must be assertive. You must be confident. And I was confident in the Lord. But uh, when the Army sent me for uh, some graduate uh, education in, in marriage and family therapy, about my 10th year on active duty, uh, actually, maybe it was a little more than that. Uh, probably I was in for about 15 years. I began to learn really some some uh, family therapy and, and counseling skills and tools. And uh, it was there that I really learned the power of collaboration and, and, and just having conversations. And I think I grew over that. But boy, I was, I was well into my... Uh, later mm -hmm. 30s before mm -hmm. I picked that up. So you started as a chaplain in in the army. What led you to that work? What what made you want to choose that caregiving role or or that that position? Well, all the way back to high school, I I had a dream to go to West Point and uh <clears throat> I applied for a senatorial um recommendation. I, I was offered one to Annapolis, but I didn't want to be on a boat. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, and I wound up going to a, uh, a, a Christian liberal arts uh, university uh, here in uh, Minnesota. And uh, I, I think it was growing up in a military family, and knowing really just a few years after I came to faith that I wanted to serve. And I thought, well, I'll go to this Christian liberal arts college and I'll, I'll, I'll major in Bible so that when I flunk out, I'll at least know the word <laughs> and be able to uh, 
to to share the word from my heart. And God just uh, empowered and allowed me to graduate for all these levels of school. But most of all, you know, it was it was growing up in the military, and I was very familiar with that culture. So that's really what led me um, into the chaplaincy. Thinking back from those early years of chaplaincy and your work there, can you share maybe a challenge or um, a life lesson that you learned yes. through that work? Well, I was, during seminary, I was an intern at a, at a church. And uh, so I, I learned some pastoral skills there, had a couple of wonderful pastoral mentors as I was um, preparing for ministry. And uh, during that same time, I was able to go into the chaplain candidate program, and I had a chance to go to the basic course, and I did some work in a hospital and in a prison. So all year long, I was in the church, but then in the summers, I had these really phenomenal experiences that kind of helped me to grow and blossom. But I would say that uh, having a ministry of presence with soldiers, and many soldiers that were less than 10 years younger than I was, and going through the, the kind of suffering with them. I, I see being an army chaplain was very incarnational. And there was just something about the fact that culturally chaplains are very, very beloved in the military. At least they were more so then. Now, I think it's a little more challenging now. But often if you were out there in the middle of a swamp or I was in an airborne assignment, I, I'm sitting in the plane, I'm about to jump out. I'm having conversations with guys, having prayers before. A lot of the time, come to you one on one in all sorts of unusual places, and they'd say their conversation would always begin like this: "Chaplain, I'm not very religious, but," <laughs> and uh, you know, it was just a wonderful opportunity because they knew you were your personality, they knew you loved them and wanted to be with them. And, and know about their world, which made you safe, and then they could approach you. I think uh, I learned some of these things when I was an intern and, and visiting parishioners' homes and where they worked, and, uh, and actually even going out. I had a very good friend in uh, seminary who was a spray foam installer. So I'd help him set up his equipment and I'd be out there spraying foam with him. And, you know, there's just something about ministry that when we can get close to our people and they know we're interested in them and want to experience their life. I can only imagine a rural pastor visiting the farm, helping put up hay, you know, or going into shops and things like that. That's ministry of presence. And I think it would benefit us all to get out of our offices more and visit people where they live, work, and play. That's changed today. You know, I, I think uh, in the olden days, a home visit was welcomed, but now they need to be approached very carefully. But it, the, the principle is the same. Ministry of presence, caring, and, for, and really knowing our people well. Some pastors uh, especially in the smaller congregations, that is a delight. But others in really the larger uh, churches, it's mm. a rarity. Mm. 
I could just imagine you sitting in that airplane. That visual came to me and the soldiers are talking to you or with the fellow who's a spray foamer. I love that. You know, I could picture that shoulder to shoulder, standing side by side, people talking, becoming vulnerable because they feel safe in that environment. And it must have been challenging or or maybe not. You could tell me that to hear stories or to hear heartbreak or to hear suffering and not, especially in the moment, not be able to do anything about it. So often people are, 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 have impulsive, impulsively want to do something to fix. But in those moments, there's nothing that you can do. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I think that's another early uh, tendency it's it's very prevalent in marriage (laughs) wanting to fix one another isn't it when we're new in 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 our marriages um but i i you said something that was very uh, there's a calling to listen and i think the more we listen and the more we allow people to speak the more we give them room to uh, take all the things inside of their head and lay them out. Um, I I think that with time as well, we don't have to be the fixers, but with experience and training, we know how to help the people we want to help make choices, empower them to choose and then it's their solution versus when we're young, we give advice, we give what we know, and uh, we believe that's our primary role. But I think our primary role is to see the image of God in the people we're speaking to and somehow connect with that in a powerful spiritual way that we're journeying alongside of them and in that conversation these profound movements of god emerge and uh, when we're transparent going both ways not that it's about us but we're being human and so in a lot of the work i do today i really emphasize that We're talking about suicide intervention training, but we're really talking about human being skills. That's what we're sharpening today, our human being skills. So speaking about the suicide prevention, there's, we have a gap in time between you being a chaplain and then you working with Living Works. Talk to me about how that transition, how you started working with Living Works. Well, let's fill in the gaps a little bit. Um, So as a chaplain, I have several memories of soldiers who died by suicide. Uh, There are a few where I have a soldier run into the chapel and say, Chapman Bloomstrom, Chapman Bloomstrom, please come. And we're running down the street and we run into the barracks and then everything goes into slow motion. And I run in. I can see people in the hallway and I turn and here is a scene that I'll never forget of a, of a young soldier that's died by suicide. 
Then there's another scene later in my career when one of my own colleagues, a fellow chaplain who was brilliant and who I requested of my supervisor, the chief of chaplain, to be reassigned with this chaplain. He was like a brother to me and, and he confided in me. And I knew that he was really struggling and we got him to a wonderful Christian psychiatrist. He was on medications, he was doing well. And then he disappeared one weekend and he had taken his life. So over the years, between being a battalion chaplain, a brand new captain, and then being a colonel assigned to the Pentagon and having to make decisions and evaluate programs of what was effective for those chaplains at various levels in the United States Army, I had to advise our chief of chaplains on what training was appropriate. And, you know, I, I was exposed to a lot of different training that was informational. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of training that will teach you content, but what really won't equip you with skills and build confidence uh, that will balance what we call safety and challenge. And so when I was exposed to some of the training of Living Works, we moved from being a content suicide prevention training to a skill-based confidence building uh, suicide intervention training. And then we parsed out the differences between prevention, intervention, and postvention. So I guess the arc comes from experiences as a chaplain with suicide to having to decide training that's appropriate for chaplains all the way now to being my heart at this phase of my life is to see more pastors equipped to listen better and if the thought of if there is a concern that suicide may be present to step into that space and ask are you thinking of suicide not to be afraid and to know what to do next I would like to hear how this training is helpful for churches, because I know that churches have want to talk about it, but there's a lot of stigma. There's a lot of myths. There's some struggle about do I do I talk? How do I talk about suicide? And if I open that can of worms, I don't know what to do with what comes out. So can you talk to me a little bit about um, what you can you talk to me a little bit about when you speak to pastors, what kind of concerns they have around suicide? I think one of the biggest challenges in training faith leaders and pastors, elders, ministry leaders in suicide is stigma. Um, uh, suicide is a mysterious thing. Why would somebody who loves Jesus, who is very much practicing their faith and just knows the truth of the scriptures, how would God allow that to happen. The sovereign God of the universe allows someone to get to that point. I think stigma causes us to avoid the topic. We don't talk about suicide very much in the church because when we raise the topic, we're afraid that we'll plant the idea or we might glamorize it or encourage you know, someone to act on suicidal thoughts. Also, 
if we talk about suicide and someone comes to talk to me about that, I don't know what to do. I might be responsible if I do the wrong thing. I could endanger my own ministry and being able to provide for my family if I do the wrong thing. I may lose people in this church if I do the wrong thing. So just stay away from that. That's not my role. That's the role of mental health practitioners. But I would argue to our ministry leaders, clergy, that it is your role. It doesn't all have to fall on you because there are many survivors and people with lived experience that could step into that space and integrate that part of their story with their call to ministry. I'll just stop right there. <laughs> I, could, I could preach a mini sermon, but, but truly stigma is one of the main reasons that we don't engage a discussion about suicide in the church. And secondly, a lack of training for ministry leaders is the other barrier. Uh, most seminaries offer one counseling class in a three-year MDiv program. Often, that class involves active listening and knowing how and when to refer, and perhaps some of the more common things. But what I've found is suicide intervention training or any kind of training in suicide prevention is usually done in continuing education, but unfortunately, often it's done after the fact, after there's been an attempt or a death by suicide. So stigma and a lack of training are the greatest barriers preventing more engagement in suicide prevention work within the church and in ministries. What is your thoughts for people who say that suicide or thoughts of suicide are not as common within the church? And so this isn't something that they need to be a specialist in. The church and active involvement in one's faith is a powerful protective factor. Being in a community, having an identity, having a future, that is informed by sacred scripture, all of those are protective factors. But we know that people of faith are not immune from crisis, from loss, from physical and emotional pain, and from the, the dilemmas of, of intense physical or emotional loss. Suicide is present in the community of faith because of these things I just listed. Consequently, we must understand that when it comes, it's overwhelming for a person of faith and they're not sure where to turn to. Because to turn to the pastor or to turn to ministry leaders might indicate a lack of faith. And so it becomes a dilemma and a person mm -hmm. isolates because they don't know what to do. Absolutely. So how does Living Works address these issues? All right. Well, Living Works is an international suicide intervention training company that's been around since the early 80s. Uh, I encountered them again, as I said before, when I was working at the uh, Pentagon in the chief of army chaplain's office, where I had to select training for our chaplains and chaplain's assistants. Living Works 
one of their programs, Living Works Applied Suicide Intervention Skills Training, or Living Works Assist, is the standard for crisis line workers. I took that. Oh, you did? <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm a graduate of uh, Assist. <laughs> oh, Assist. Wonderful, Laura. I'm, I'm delighted to hear that. So I brought that into the military. And now Living Works has um, the owner of our company is a man of faith. And many, many of our team members are people of faith. And they see a vision for engaging more ministry leaders, clergy, elders, pastors. And so we have developed, along with our face-to-face -face kind of um, industry standard, ASSIST, we have developed a six-hour online training program called Living Works Faith. It's not just suicide intervention but it's things a pastor can consider in his or her role as a ministry leader and suicide. It can also talk about preventive things you can do to encourage help seeking. All those are being integrated into the natural rhythm of, of, of the church or ministry. That's prevention. Intervention, we use a online 90 minute to two hour training program called Living Works Start fully online, and it, it really teaches the basic level of intervention skills. And then we talk about long-term care, suicide grief, memorials, funerals, and the unique challenges to the pastor, ministry leader, or clergy in enfolding and helping the church to support those who are dealing with suicide grief or the stigma associated with a suicide attempt, um, that people do not leave the church, but feel supported and not stigmatized. That stigma can be within the person, looking for it to be confirmed, or it can be actual, come from the congregation when they don't know what to do or say, and the person feels ostracized already and leaves the church. So Living Works Faith covers all three of those domains of suicide prevention. What was that first one again? The first one is prevention. Prevention. And that one is talking about enabling or empowering the pastor or clergy with school skills or tools to integrate that into the work that they're already doing? Like Exactly. Okay. Exactly. To remember to pray for people hmm. with mental illness, with life crisis, who may be thinking of suicide. Uh, to feature or to have a speaker come to tell their story and what it was like to be trained or not to be trained. In fact, Living Works Faith uses about 15 different people who, and many of them, a wide variety of clergy, to tell their story when they weren't prepared and when they were prepared. There's, a, there's one particular individual, a, a wife, who has been a chaplain, she has been a volunteer, very involved in her church with a recovery ministry, and her husband, who was a deputy sheriff, who they both love the Lord deeply, but her husband uh, had some physical loss and a lot of PTSD as a sheriff and died by suicide. Her story is woven into the entire training. So it's a very natural story-based 
training, we also hear from people who have had thoughts of suicide, who've lost loved ones, what was helpful, what was not helpful, what they experienced in terms of stigma. So it's not just narrated PowerPoints. Mm -hmm. It is really even like our podcast interview today. It was a natural story that we build the content around. So it's very engaging. We also have a companion guide that um, someone can listen uh, as they're going through the training. It's a companion guide for them to interact with the content and to develop an action plan. So it's fully online, your own pace can be accessed 24 seven. But we're also uh, looking at offering for networks of clergy, uh, denominations, the, uh, the opportunity to facilitate with a larger group of 20 to 40, where we would have Zoom meetings and have breakout groups and then talk about the content as they go through. So that's kind of a new element, mm. but that's more about the program. That's awesome. So having been a graduate of Living Works, I can attest to the amazing work and the, the high quality and the research and the valid tools and skills that are taught there. But I also want to engage people who are looking to just start, might not be ready to engage with a program or to training and to bring that in. Looking at those three steps, prevention, intervention, and what was the last one called? Well, we call it long-term care, but but it's but really accurately, it's postvention, postvention after suicide behaviors. Okay, that's the activities. All of that is called suicide prevention, but it's really a tripartite function: prevention, intervention, postvention. So, for prevention, we were kind of starting off talking about how that's integrating into the work and the messaging that that clergy or pastors offer. Can you give us a few tips? I think you mentioned one where it was prayer. Is there anything else that that clergy can use to help at least decrease the stigma so people feel that it's a safe place? Yes. Uh, have, have pastors, have, have clergy, ministry leaders preached a sermon on suicide? Have they talked about how God is a, a sovereign God, but God is also in Christ, a God who suffered, you know, strengthen the, uh, the, the foundations of a theology of suffering. And when speaking of a theology of suffering, the power of grace when thinking of suicide. So thinking, uh, so offering a sermon series on theology of suffering on the God who suffered, but also ways that people suffer where they should not suffer alone. So having thoughts of suicide, reaching out mm. for help, expanding your support network with tremendously um, besetting suffering to broaden out, to reach out to the church, you know, help seeking. So sermons, prayers, featuring people with lived experience who can tell their stories, not only about suicide, but mental health and how, you know, to demystify this, that it's not the role of the, of the pastor, the clergy to treat that his or her ministry is integrative. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, spiritual uh, resources, scripture, prayer, fellowship, study, 
lament. Um, all of these are elements that are profoundly helpful for people, regardless of any diagnosis or addiction. It gives identity, hope, restoration, forgiveness. So integrating, you know, you know, I, I just go and hear prayers often. They, they, they're limited to a certain piece, broaden those out a little bit, you know, to people. Uh, we had a, a pastor in our church talk about in a <laughs> sermon about having a panic attack. Mm -hmm. And he said, I had so many people come up to me and say, thank you. I've, I've struggled with panic attacks for years. And, and they just shared. We had another um, seminarian speak in our church about um, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. He's very intelligent. His brain is wired a certain way. And how God's grace has met him in that diagnosis. We have an elder who comes to I teach in seminary. He shares the story of a lifetime struggle with depression. All those make all of these things less mysterious and also opens up the fact that sincere believers can still be impacted by these kinds of issues. So that's prevention. Those are prevention. Intervention has to do with being trained. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and we believe in training, intervention training based on roles. Not everyone needs to be trained like you and I were trained to the level of assist um, which I equate with like being a first responder for suicide. We have a four hour program that I'd say is like first aid, you know, clear the airway, stop the bleeding, treat for shock, basic first aid. Our, our start program, Living Work Start, is like CPR, breathing, chest compression. Each one can refer to the next level. So that's where I believe that all pastors would be, do so well to be trained at the highest level because people are referring others to him or her. That's intervention. So living works faith, does the prevention, which is breaking down stigma, making safe places, addressing it and talking about it, removing shame. And um, prevention is more the support and the and the the for lack of a better word treatment not clinical treatment but addressing the issue specifically is that help seeking help seeking, help seeking. there you go it's help seeking a, and that and that starts with asking people just saying it like so many people are scared to say the word suicide but what does that do to other people right. when they say the word suicide or ask people outright are you thinking of suicide Right. Now that's an intervention skill, mm -hmm. but using the word suicide in a prayer, in a sermon, mm -hmm. referring to it, it, it gives people the permission to seek help. Mm -hmm. And that's where we, we spoke of earlier in our conversation that people are afraid to use the word suicide because they are not sure how to deal with it. It's mysterious. But the more we use the word, the more people will get a sense that maybe maybe I can talk to pastor about this. Mm -hmm. He or she has mentioned that. And so uh, I think that's a big step mm -hmm. in prevention. Definitely. And then postvention, really for people to understand the dynamics of suicide, grief, their sadness at loss, 
but there's also periods of rage. Uh, how could you do this? Why didn't you let us know? Why didn't you? Uh, so we, we could have gotten you some help. Right. And then also, um, I now, I now am, am tainted. I, I somehow have a mark of disgrace uh, that set me apart, regular grief without these elements. And so understanding that and for people to understand that suicide grief should be treated the same as other kinds of grief. And friends and, and people in church make room and safe places for those that are bereaved to be able to process these mixed kinds of elements of grief uh, that they're experiencing because of suicide. So those are the three parts. Awesome. I'm so excited to introduce this resource. If you are listening and you are finding yourself wanting to know how to support people who are struggling with suicide, you want to learn those skills of intervention and gain those tools and resources about postvention and and the and the long-term care that you can provide to your to your community. I recommend that you connect with Living Works. Um, Glenn, are you able to share with how people are able to connect with you or get more information? Oh, sure. Sure. I'd love to hear from anyone who's interested in suicide intervention skills or the full uh, aspects of suicide prevention, intervention, and postvention in our Living Works Faith program. Um, our website is www.livingworks.net. And um, my email is glenn.bloomstrom at livingworks.net. I'm sure Laura will have that uh, somewhere on the podcast. And uh, also, I just want to remind any listeners that might be having thoughts of suicide or know someone who is struggling with suicide. If you've not been trained uh, or are unsure, one of the most natural things to do is call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And this number should be in all of your cell, cell phones. It's 800-273-8255. And you can put it on a speaker. You can have a conversation with that person and the crisis line worker who is trained. And he or she will be able to point you in the direction of some good resources. I would love it if more and more pastors, ministry leaders, volunteers would be trained in suicide intervention skills. Let me just also just throw in a little piece, um, Laura, that you might want to consider. Now, I believe very powerfully in natural helpers. These are teachers, coaches, friends, scout leaders, um, anyone and everyone, uh, barbers, bartenders, beauticians. We have this whole host of people that listen to and have relationships with a wide variety of people. Anyone can be trained in suicide intervention skills. So really encourage you for your friends that you work with or go to school with, that you live, work, play, and worship with. These kinds of skills are like having suicide prevention on the radar. Um, and I can encourage you more. And the first time you use those skills and save a life, you'll realize that was time well invested. Mm. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much. And just hearing your story of how you grew up in in the military and that culture of being a support to people and and going through the training and hearing the stories of soldiers and 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 consulting with the Pentagon in in bringing this training for forward. I'm curious to know if what you know today, if you could go back and tell your past self when you were younger, what you, some of the wisdom that you have today, what would that be? If I were to speak to my younger self, I would want to be trained. Uh, I, I, want, I loved being trained in first aid and CPR. I'd want to be trained in suicide prevention that is evidence-based and that is skill-focused so that I would be ready. Now, we know that even if we're trained, that somebody might take their life anyway. But to not be trained is to perhaps not have that lifeline available to reach out and to provide for someone. So that's what I would say. And then secondly, I would listen a lot more to people (laughs) and not try to fix them too soon. So those, I think, full circle for our conversation, Laura, those would be a couple of things that I would want to be different from when I was just starting out. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Laura. It's been a pleasure and and blessings on your podcast future. And it was just such a privilege to be your first guest. (laughs) Thanks for listening. I encourage you to put what you've heard today into action. How are you going to be intentional about building a culture of care for both yourself and for others in your church? And don't forget, if you want to be reminded when an episode goes live, make sure you subscribe. Thanks for connecting and take care.